I know, but today we're going to continue in our uh, our summer series. It's just really a variety of topics, and this parable I'm going to be speaking on today is one you've probably heard a hundred times in your life. It's one we're very familiar with. It's the, the the parable of the prodigal son, and it's actually one that I've never spoken on. I've now uh, given about 200 sermons in my life. I've never spoken on the prodigal son, which is one of the most important and well-known parables in all of the Bible. And so I'm excited to really go through this today and, and, and talk about what it means. But, but one thing is, I, I think it's mistitled. The prodigal son is what we know it as. I really think it's about the surprising father. And we see the father in this story react in a way that none of us really expect or predict, but it really reveals for us the true heart and the character of God. And so I encourage you to open up to Luke 15 now in your Bibles. It's a lot of verses today. We're actually been going through it um, in chunks, uh, 10 different chunks, uh, and we're going to talk about it as, as we read it. But I want to give you some context of what we're about to read. And so if you're in Luke 15 already, go all the way to the top of the chapter. And it's important to know who Jesus is talking to before we understand the points that he's trying to make. In many of his parables, he's speaking directly to the disciples or to those who are seeking truth in Jesus. But in this case, he's speaking to the opposite. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what they're seeing is that Jesus is interacting with these sinners of society, the the tax collectors, the people who have made so many mistakes that they viewed them as lost and unworthy of his attention. And so Jesus then gives three parables in a row that I think for us, we just see these or hear these stories. We know them, but through the decades, through the millennia, I should say, of time, I think it's lost the impact and the shock that it would have had on these Pharisees and the teachers of the law as they heard it. And he gives three parables. The first is is talking about a shepherd who loses one of his 100 sheep. And he goes, drops everything to find the one lost sheep. And then a widow who loses one of her ten coins. And she searches the whole house until she finds the one last coin. But then he ends with this story. Where a father loses one of his two sons. And it kind of ups the ante, if you will, in each story that's shared But this is a story that Jesus shared so the leaders could truly know the heart of God and what it means for him to bring the lost son or the sinner back in his life. And as I read these stories, I try to put myself in the position of the original listener and and what it would mean to me. And maybe all of us can identify with losing something of value. And the first one of the sheep, how many of you can identify with losing a pet? Looking for a lost dog? Yeah. That's something I, that happened to me last summer. We have a golden retriever who's now 11 years old, 10 years old at the time. She's been a wonderful dog. And uh, my wife left, and I was the last one out of the house, and, and I left. And then uh, I realized I didn't know where the dog was. So I went back in the house to make sure that she was still in the house. Nowhere to be found. And I went all around the neighborhood looking for our dog, and I'm starting to feel a bit of panic. And after about 20 minutes, I came back and opened up the garage door, and out pops Britta, our golden retriever. (laughs) 
I accidentally locked her in our garage, but there's this feeling of, of, uh, of relief when I had found her. But then it went from that to, I shared the story last week, if any of you have lost something valuable, last summer I, uh, my wife also lost her engagement ring, which I searched through in our lawn until we found it, and there's that feeling of relief. But now, it's losing a child. Have any of you ever physically lost your child, even for a few moments? Yeah, you're not a bad parent. Okay, I think it happens to everyone. And the same thing, I lost my then four-year-old son for about three minutes at Cabela's one time. And me and, and my wife were there, and he was there, and then he wasn't. And we're panicked, and I go to the front door, and, and we're waiting, and then he comes back because he wants to come up and, and ride the four-wheelers up front. It's three minutes of my life, but it felt like decades of time. And the relief of seeing him again just overwhelmed me. But here we go even one step further from physically losing a child or a son to relationally losing a son. And this is something that would have been so hard for any parent or someone who understands to to hear. But this is what God goes through when he loses his children to sin, but but then they come back in repentance. It's a beautiful story that details some of the most terrible pain someone can feel, but then the relief and the joy when they find the lost son. So we're going to read this, as I said, one portion at a time. But before we do, I just want to pray for us, as, as this story is so important. Inside of this story is the entirety of the gospel message for us and a clear call uh, for every believer. So join me in prayer before we read the scripture today. So Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, this, this story that, that your son gave so long ago that as we talk through it and discuss the points that are being made, God, there's so much here that, that impacts us. But I, I pray, God, that through all of us that we would understand your heart, your character, your compassion, and the ways that you continue to surprise us as, as we think about this. And, and God, I just pray that, that we be people that no matter where we're at, we know that we can come back to you and find full acceptance and grace in your presence. So God, I just pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and that my words would just simply be your message, your words that goes out, that, that your Holy Spirit resonates in people's hearts wherever they're at. They truly shape us and form us and teach us through your power today. And we pray that now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as you know, probably all of you know this story in and out. There's three main characters that we're going to be studying separately. And there's, there's the, the wayward son, the prodigal son who leaves the house. There's the father. And then there's the older brother. And here in the first couple of verses, Jesus sets up everything. And he says that Jesus continued, now in this third parable, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now on the surface, this might not seem like much. The kid just wants things from his dad. But culturally, this is loaded with implications, and this would have been extremely painful for the father to hear. Now, inheritance was a really important part of this culture, and being a part of a family meant that you're entitled to an inheritance. 
It's something that was given to you, but it's also something that you work towards. And in this case, the father had an estate, he had land, he had many things. And so the sons were expected to continue work and serving with the father until they would inherit that after the time that the father passes. But when the younger of his two sons said to the father, give me my share of the estate, essentially what he was saying is, I want what I feel like I deserve right now. Because what I want is your stuff. I don't care about you. Essentially what he's saying is, I don't care if you're dead or alive because you're basically dead to me right now. And I'm going to leave and I never want to see you again. This was a son who no doubt hurt his father in this moment. And he said, if you won't hurry up and die... You might as well be dead to me now. And he took his stuff, as we see in the verses ahead, and he sold off everything, all of his land and possessions. He just liquidated the money, and he left his dad. And what we see right here is this wayward son who represents someone who sins against God. And anytime you sin against God, you're basically saying, it doesn't matter what you think or what you believe, or, or what you know is true, I want to do this myself. I'm going to do it my way, and so you don't matter to me anymore. And when anyone makes that choice, which all of us have in our lives, it begins the downward spiral of sin and consequence. So this younger son now takes all of this stuff He abandons the father and the family. He liquidates the assets, and he goes off, as we continue in verse 13. And note here this downward spiral that we see him go on. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent Everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So the son takes the cash. And he leaves to a distant land. And what this means is that he went to a pagan country, right? So he he left the land of, of, of God. He went to another country where he could just follow any desire he had. There would be no judgment. It would be completely endorsed by the people around him. And it says that he squandered his wealth and wild living. And your imagination doesn't have to go too far of the kinds of things that he is involved in there. And it says later on from the brother that he blew it on prostitutes and there's probably drunkenness and everything and gambling. It was all gone. He squandered everything that his father had worked for his whole life to pass on to his son in short time. And after he had spent some time there and spent everything he had, then the hard times hit. He had nothing to fall back on. 
And so he went and he hired himself out. Another way of saying that is he, he begged for something. I'll be a slave to whoever takes me to do something to help myself out. And he's put in the most lowly position, at least as far as a Jew is concerned, that he's taking care of these dirty and detestable creatures, these pigs. He's literally in the pig pen, living with them in the mud, and so hungry that he wants what the pigs are eating because nothing for himself. And you just see this trajectory downward, spiral, spiral, until he's in this rock-bottom moment. So in verse 12, he made himself fatherless. In verse 13, he made himself homeless. In verse 14, he made himself penniless. In 15, he made himself friendless. In 16, he made himself foodless. And it left him in a place of being completely hopeless. Now, if Jesus had stopped here, without a doubt, these Pharisees would have applauded this story. This man got what he deserved. He made these mistakes. He's feeling the consequence of the sin. And now he can stay in the pen with those pigs. But Jesus didn't stop there. Because the whole point of these parables is is what we are to do with sinners who want to come back. And so in this rock-bottom moment, this wayward son has a self-realization. He has this reflection, and as we read in verse 17, that when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. It's this moment, again, coming to your senses is is another way of saying he came to himself or he saw himself. He looked in the mirror and decided the reality of what's really happening here. I, I thought I had it bad at my father's house and I just wanted to get out of there. But I'm realizing that I had it great. And even the servants in my father's house had plenty I made a big mistake. It's a spiral of self-harm, and now in this rock-bottom moment, he has this moment of self-reflection. What we see in this, what this represents, is that, that sin in itself has kind of an insanity to it. Those who, who live fueled by their desire for sin are insane. Because there's these consequences all around them. But all of sin from the very beginning is built on lies. There's a deception to sin. And for the very first sin, Eve was tempted by Satan when he said, Surely you're not going to die. I mean, just eat the fruit. Nothing's going to happen. And there's kind of a slow path towards the consequences. She probably nervously took her first bite and then, Well, I didn't die. Things aren't so bad. But the consequences began to pile up. And there's this insanity to it that we can continue to be deceived that if I just keep doing this, I I will be happy. I will be fulfilled. I will feel good. I will be important. But then you find yourself in the pig pen. And you need to come to this place of self-reflection to understand what's really happening. Those who live their lives to serve sin are miserable. And at best, 
they'll be deceived. It's just a rough patch. If I just keep going the course, it's going to get better. I'm going to get paid more. Uh, the, the, the famine's going to turn around. This is going to work. I just got to keep doing it. Other times they come to the place of just blaming everyone else. And, and there's maybe these thoughts that went through the son's mind before he came to his senses. Of, oh, if my dad would have worked harder and had more to pass on to me, then I wouldn't have run out of money. If this, this pig farmer had a better paying job for me, then I wouldn't be in this position. And you can blame everyone else for every problem in your life. But at some point, you need to come to your senses. And the son is realizing, I made a huge mistake. And this represents, in this moment, one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit, which is conviction. Now, how many of you love to be convicted by the Holy Spirit? It's not fun. But the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal truth to us. And sometimes, knowing the truth awakens you to the lie. And it's not a fun moment. But you can't keep ignoring reality. You can't keep blaming others. At some point, you need to come to your senses and know that there's a mistake that has been made. And that brings you then to a place of self-humility. And that's what we see detailed in these last three verses talking about this wayward son. He comes up with this plan. He says, I will set out I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Here's the moment that we see a turnaround in his character. And there's this real change Happening, and he's, he's confessing, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, Father. He accepted his responsibility for his actions. He was in the wrong, and he was ready to confess that and acknowledge where he's at. And this represents, for a repentant sinner, some who understand that, that they did come to that place of a realization, I'm in wrong, I'm confessing to you, God, I agree with you that this was wrong. But it doesn't end there because verse 20 has probably the most important words in this whole parable. That if he came to this realization, he made this confession, that he got up and he went to his father. And that is true repentance. Because he could have come to this point. He could have had all these thoughts. He could have felt bad about it and ashamed about it. But he's like, but you know what? I know I need to go to the Father. I need to go back there and make those amends. But, you know, this weather looks kind of bad. I'll just stay here for the night and then try again tomorrow. And then he wakes up the next day. I didn't get very good sleep. I just got a headache. I'll, I'll try again the next day. And you know what? That pig looks like it's about to have babies, which is like two months from now. So I better stay here in the pig pen, make sure everything is squared away before I go. Now he came to the realization He got up and he went to his father. And in so doing, he left behind everything in his life up to that point. All of those mistakes. He didn't want to live in the pig pen anymore. 
He didn't want to live for himself. He just wanted to be back with the Father. And that's the most important point of repentance. Not just feeling bad. Not just thinking good thoughts. But turning away. And going back to the Father and say, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than in your house. No matter how that is. None of that interests me anymore. He got up. He went to the Father. And when he did that, the most surprising thing happened in this story. While he was a long way off, We don't know what that means, if it's a hundred feet or a half a mile. He's far enough that he could be seen, probably not close enough to be smelled. He's a long way off, verse 20. And his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And we see the surprising response of the Father. Heart of compassion and grace and love for the Son that hurt him so deeply. We learn so much about God's nature just from this one verse alone. You see, when the, when the Son left, his actions were well known to everyone. It was not a secret. He was the talk of the house. He was the talk of the village. And, and he knew that he'd be returning to the place where he failed. And that's really hard to do because he was assuming he was going to go through a gauntlet of criticism and hostility. And he was probably prepared now to, to be met with his father who had come out in anger at his son. But to our surprise, the father, at first glimpse, before any word was spoken, dropped everything he had and ran to his son and embraced him. I try to put myself in the place of the father in this parable. What I would do, and I think all of us, we think about it, we'd be happy to see the son return, but there'd be so much pain That we need to say before I give you anything. Let me just tell you how much you hurt me. You need to know. You probably would have waited for them to walk all the way up and say, Well, well, well. Look who the cat drug in. Crawling on back to your daddy, huh? But that's not God's heart. He runs. And just for some context in in this culture... Older men did not run, especially dignified men, landowners, and those with wealth. It was seen as something degrading for an older man to run. But he didn't care. He didn't care what other people thought. He runs to his son. He embraces him with joy. And I just want this to be a point of application For all of you here today, and I know there's some of you that need to hear this, and I hope you accept this. There is nothing in your life that could be so terrible that God won't run to you if you come to him. God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you if you come back to him in a place of confession and repentance. 
He doesn't even need to hear your speech. God will run to you and embrace you as his own. And go to him. But this continues now. The son kind of starts his speech that he has prepared. And I'm sure he rolled this through his mind hundreds of times on his way back to his father. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he had more to this speech. And the father cuts him off. And the father doesn't speak to his son about those issues. He speaks to the servants. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The son was prepared to come back to not be a son anymore. He just wanted to be a servant. But before he could even get there, the father made it clear that he was still his son more than ever. And there's great symbolism in these three items here. The robe, the ring, and the sandals. And this robe that's being referred to here was, was the robe that belonged to the father. It's something he would have worn at uh, festivals, at celebrations. And the fact that he's putting on his son is saying, you are still a part of me. You're still a part of this house, and you are the guest of honor here. The ring was a symbol of authority in the household. It's something only family members would wear. He said, now that you're back, you have all of the authority of the son of this family. He welcomed him back just as he had left. And the sandals, the servants in this culture would walk around barefoot. But the sandals are saying, you're not going to be a servant. You're going to be my son. He wasn't just being closed in this moment but he's being covered with honor and acceptance by the father. And even though this son had squandered all of his rights as a son, the father is fully accepting him as a son again. And then they begin to joyously celebrate this occasion. And so the father continues in verse 23. To his servants he said, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now this would have been nothing ordinary. It wasn't just a weekly occasion that they're setting up here. This was a once in a generation kind of celebration. The fattened calf was something they prepared only for the greatest of celebrations, something they're waiting for. And the, and the father said, that time is now. Because the son who was dead to me is now alive. The son that was lost is now found. And this kind of celebration, this joy, is what happens in heaven every time a sinner repents and returns to the Father. And that is not my assumption. It's what Jesus just said. When you look at the two parables that were shared before this, in verse 7, Jesus says, this is after the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And after the parable of the lost coin, he says, I tell you, verse 10, 
There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now in this story, this father is celebrating this moment when the son realizes, turns his life around, he repents from the past and goes back to the father. And he's saying, now everything is like it was. I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to hear the whole speech. I accept you as my son, just the way you are. This is surprising, right? Because this is so different than the rest of the, of the world and how it works. And in every other religion, there's a level of penance, right? You have to prove yourself to God. You have to cover up the bad with the good. And you have to make sure that God's going to accept you. And there's always a fear that he won't. But God is the God of grace and redemption to the place that we can't even fully understand it. But Jesus wasn't the only one that spoke in parables. In fact, most major religions have parables in their teachings. And even in Buddhism, there's a prodigal son parable in Buddhism. You probably didn't know that. And in this teaching, everything starts exactly the same as, as this parable starts. There's a son who disowns the father, who takes all the inheritance and goes in a faraway land and squanders it, finds himself in need. But it's different in the Buddhist parable. Because this is the way most of the world thinks. So the father, so grieved by the loss of his, the loss of his son, changes properties and wants to leave that all behind. The son comes back. And now is at his father's new property, but the son doesn't even recognize the father. The father recognizes the son, but he hides himself. And he says, I'm going to let this old son of mine work on this property. And over time, I'm going to observe him and make sure that he's dutiful and he's considerate and he's moral and he's devoted. And once he's proved himself to me, then I'll reveal my nature to him and accept him back as a son. And that's what happened over a period of time is is he finally said that I am your father and now you are my son again. That's how we normally think. That's how the world thinks. And it makes sense to us that the son should prove himself after the way he hurt his father. Because we're thinking, he's just going to do it again. And we need to protect ourselves. But this is not a parable of merit but it's a picture of God's surprising grace. God does not only accept the dry cleaned, but as you read here, God runs to the dirty. And this picture of God was a picture the Pharisees did not know. They claimed to know God, but they didn't know the true God. And that's why the story doesn't end here, though it could. Now we get to see the older brother, the jealous brother. And the last remaining verses in the parable are devoted to him. As we read in verse 25, that meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. He has him back, because he has him back, safe and sound. 
Now, if the younger son represents the sinner and the father represents God, then the older son certainly represents the Pharisee, the teachers of the law, the self-righteous, the proud. And this is like when the worst fears are kind of realized, like my brother, that good-for-nothing brother of mine is back. And even worse, he's being celebrated by my dad. And what we understand from this son is that he was dutiful. He was out working in the fields. He was a part of his father's house. But at the same time, he was detached and unaware of what was going on. He lived in the house and worked in the fields of his father, but he didn't even know his father's heart. And so we see in verse 28 through 30, his his true character kind of being revealed in this moment. And so the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, You kill the fattened calf for him. This reveals a lot about the son and his true character here. He'd rather stay out of fellowship with the father than to accept his father's gracious heart. He does not want to go in. He chose to put himself out of the house at this moment. He excluded himself, and the father is pleading with him to go in. But there is a contempt for the father displayed here. Just in the word, look. And it is filled with disrespect. And he he lists off this litany of complaints, clearly rehearsed for years, of how he feels like his father did not respect him. And there's this contempt for his brother. Notice here, he doesn't even call him his brother. But he says to the father, "This, this son of yours, he's not a brother to me anymore is back and you're celebrating him? And through all of this, there's only a concern for himself. He's so self-focused, he can't even get beyond that to be a part of something bigger than himself. I've been slaving for you, Dad. I've been doing all these things. I've never disobeyed you. And what's been in it for me? Huh? I didn't get a, a goat? And you're giving him the fattened calf? And what this reveals is that He never truly loved the father. He didn't even know the father. He wanted a transactional relationship with him. All of his efforts were not done out of love and duty for his father. They're done for what he could receive in return. And here we have a younger brother who gave up his sonship. He's not coming back asking to be a son. He's he's prepared to beg to just be a servant. But we have the older brother who had all of the ability to be a son, but views himself as a servant. This is the base of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, as I said a couple of weeks ago, is one of the most dangerous tools against the gospel of God. It's this idea that you can work for yourself the merit to get what you deserve from the Father. 
self-righteousness. It, it puts you down this nasty path where the worst possible, or the best possible outcome, which is still really bad, is that you're deceived by your own self-righteousness. You can believe that you've done enough to deserve what you think you deserve. And at best, or at worst rather, the worst place you can get it is, is being tortured by self-righteousness. You may be in the spot where it's just like, I never know if I'll be good enough. In this case, it's the brother who's convinced he is good enough, but he's seeing this unfair treatment of the people around him. And he's jealous by this. He lived in the father's house, but he did not know the father's house. And he convinced himself through his own efforts that he deserved everything. But God's heart is rooted in grace. And that's where we see the last couple of verses. That even this jealous brother who has contempt for his father and his, his younger brother is still pleaded with by the father. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Now, if I were the father, I would be furious with this son. This is where God surprises us. And he's telling you, I've already given you everything as a son. It's all there for the taking. But you have to know me and you have to know now is the time we have to celebrate. This is yours for the taking to be the son. I'm going to leave it up to you to be a part of this or not. And what I find fascinating about this story is there, there seems to be kind of an omission, at least in my mind. It just ends here. And we never know what the older brother did. Did he go in and celebrate with his father? Or did he stay out in the fields in rebellion and jealousy and hatred? And I think that's, that's kind of the whole point of this parable, actually. Is that he's talking to these Pharisees, and he's laying out the whole picture for them of what's happening. And he's inviting them now, as Jesus is in the presence of, of sinners and tax collectors, and quote, the worst of the worst. He's saying, now I'm inviting you to be a part of this. The point of the parable is that to reject the Father's gracious treatment of even the most unworthy is to deceive ourselves about our need for grace and therefore forfeit our fellowship with God. If we don't like the grace that's extended to sinners, then we don't understand the grace that's needed for us. And as long as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law stayed angry at the grace shown to sinners, they were truly outside the Father's house. I think that's the, the full point of this parable. I think oftentimes we read this parable of the prodigal son, and the takeaway we come with is we need to be the father in this story. Which the father in this story is God. We can't be God. We can't forgive repentant sinners and take them back. And we should strive to be like the father 
But, but in that, I think a lot of people read this and say, the point is, we need to be nicer to those sinners out there. Right? We need, we need to just like be tolerant of them and just, just, just show grace to them and everything. But, but us, you know, the, the really good people need to be nice to those sinners. And so, and so we think that the point is we have to be like the Father. We should always be like the Father. The point of this parable is to realize you're one of the two sons in this story. You're one of the two sons. You have to reflect and say, which one am I? And one, you have the proud, the self-righteous, the angry, the dismissive, the transactional, who lives in close proximity to the Father, but doesn't actually know the Father's heart. And you look at all the other people and say, you don't deserve the grace that I do. That's option one. Option two is to be like the prodigal. And I'm not encouraging anyone to squander all of their money in wild living, all right? But it's this reality that everyone has sinned, that we have all sinned against heaven. We've all sinned against the Father. And come to the place where you come to your senses. And you confess, I I made a big mistake, and I need to turn away from this, and the only place I want to go is to the Father. You're one of the two sons in this parable. And the point is to understand which one you are. But in all of that is this central figure, the surprising father. And if you understand that you are the prodigal, you are the wayward, he is going to accept you with generous grace and welcome you back as a son or a daughter just the way you left off and joyfully celebrate that you returned. You were once dead, but now you're alive. You were once lost, but now you are found. Which son are you? When you understand, then you run to the surprising father. When we have a time of communion, we understand what Jesus did for us. It's a time to remember that he's done all that's necessary to not only forgive our sin, but just to completely remove it from us. So if we go back to the Father, it's not a list of things that we need to go through. It's that when you confess and you repent of your sin and you go to God, that sin is, is removed from you. Okay? It, it, is, it is as far as the east is from the west. It is no longer attached to you. He doesn't see you through that sin anymore. He died... For the sinners, he died for those who needed it. Romans chapter 5. This is, this is a part of Romans. If you know this book, the whole first three, four, five, six chapters are basically saying, we have a mistake here. We have, we have a problem here. Okay, Sin has a huge problem in our lives. And we start to see it turn around in these verses. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, this is just like the prodigal son sleeping in the pig pen. There's nothing he could do. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the surprising 
love of God. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinners. Me and you. And when a sinner finds salvation in Christ, all of heaven celebrates. And salvation is found nowhere else but through Jesus. What he did on the cross. That's what this time is to remember. We didn't deserve this. Again, the the, the crucifixion, what what Jesus went through, his resurrection, and all that happened in his life, we can kind of just take for granted because we've we've heard it a million times. Just just think about that, though. He died for you on the cross. You didn't even ask for it. You didn't deserve it. But through that comes salvation and forgiveness of your sin. This is a time to remember that and reflect on that. There's just a little bit about communion here, if this is your first time uh, doing it with us. It's something we do regularly, once a month. And it's for anyone who professes faith in Jesus. So if you're a newcomer here, there's no class or membership you need to be a part of. If you profess faith in Christ and believe what he did for you on the cross, this time is for you to reflect and to remember on that. We believe that the bread and the cup that we're about to take are, are purely symbolic. They're tools to help us to remember the body that was given for us and the blood that was shed for us. But it's a time that we do with the utmost of reflection and thankfulness for all that God has done. And so normally we'd have a time of, of silence and reflection before we pass the elements. We're going to do a little bit different today just because I see the time uh, where we're at. We're actually going to have you reflect while the elements are being passed. We're going to have a song being sung, song that just really details all of, the, of what Jesus did for you. And, and in this time, you can just take a quiet moment for yourself. You can join in in singing, but truly reflect on how deep God's love is for you and all that Jesus did on the cross for you. And that is the only way then to find the repentance and forgiveness in him. So I'm going to have the elders come forward. I'm going to pray as they do that. We'll pass the elements. I just ask that you take, uh, you hold on to that uh, until we, we take of those together. So I'll have the elders come forward as I pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your surprising love and grace for us, something that, that can be easy to be taken for granted. But we know that the, the utmost of your love demonstrated for us was that your son died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So God, in this time of communion, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, I pray that it truly would be a time that we could proclaim your death and, and, and understand what you've done for us and, and come to a place at just a new level of appreciation for you and how deep your love is for us. So God, may you just bless us in this time and, and just really touch us where we're at. And I just pray for anyone now, in this time especially, if there's anyone that has a, a sin that needs to be confessed to you, I pray that they would just come to you, just as the wayward son did to the Father, and find that surprising level of grace and forgiveness and redemption that's found in your name. So God, I just pray that this time be used for you, that you be glorified in it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.